0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: There had been abuse in my family, but it
2: was mostly musical in nature.
3: of this
1: lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up I want something snappy. Sound Opinions is heading south of the border. Our world tour continues with a stop in Mexico. I'm Jim DiRogatis from
2: WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cot of the Chicago Tribune. Music journalist Josh Norick is our guide through the Mexican music scene from Norteño to techno. And back in Chicago, we review the latest from gospel godmother Mavis Staples. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is Bobby Blue Bland with a song called Further Up the Road, one of his classics from the 60s. Bobby Blue Bland, dead at the age of 83 in Memphis a few days ago, the same city where he developed his chops as one of the smoothest blues vocalists ever. A lot of people called him the Sinatra of the blues, and he was the king of pop blues. I think the great contribution of Bland to blues history is it had been dominated by shouters up until the point where this guy started singing. And he had said sort of that velvet smoothness that he brought to the genre, which was unlike anything that had come before him. He started out as a gospel singer, and he was also a big part of that Beale Street blues scene in Memphis. He actually was in a band with B.B. King at one point. He was also B.B.'s chauffeur and valet for a time. <laughs> so he would take B.B. to the show, open the show for B.B. King, and then drive B.B. back afterwards. So and would, press his suits. Yeah, indeed. He was uh, He was a do-everything kind of guy for a long period of time, paying his dues, so to speak. Then he established his name in the late 50s with a bunch of singles on the Duke label out of Houston that were put together on a 1961 compilation album called Two Steps from the Blues. Folks, if you're looking for one record to represent Bobby Blue Bland, this would be the one. The album cover sums it all up. You know, it's Bobby in front of this building, foot on a step, and he's got that jacket slung over the shoulder, very Sinatra-like. And uh, he, he would say that he would listen to the pop crooners like Sinatra. Big influence in his life was Nat King Cole. He wanted that intensity, but he also wanted that smoothness. So he was emulating these pop and jazz singers and bringing that sensibility into his blues songs. You know, using the microphone as an instrument, using subtlety and intimacy as a way of delivering songs. That was pretty fresh stuff for the blues at that point. He had a bunch of hits further up the road we just played, I Pity the Fool, That's the Way Love Is, Turn on Your Love Light, 60 R&B hits throughout a career that lasted for decades. He was playing two to 300 shows a year well through the 90s. And, remained one of the main draws on the blues circuit, primarily playing to African-American audiences throughout his life, but a classic singer that I think had universal appeal. I want to go back to that first record to play what I think is one of his signature songs, his version of St. James Infirmary. It's an American folk song that had been passed through generations, uh, Louis Armstrong did a version actually of it in the 20s that's quite famous. All these versions of that song are taking different takes on the death of a lover. And I think Bobby Blue Bland's version is among the most devastating of them all because you can just hear the sorrow in his voice. I think what he's talking about is that the woman he loved committed suicide here, and he's so devastated that he wants to trade places with her. This is Bobby Blue Bland with St. James Infirmary on Sound Opinions.
4: I went down to St. James and Farmery And I heard my baby groan, And I felt so broken hearted She used to be my very own I tried so hard to wish it was me and stay
1: That was St. James Infirmary, the version by Bobby Blue Bland, dead at the age of 83.
2: listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott here with Jim Dirigadas, and that's a track called La Loco Matora by Mexican artist Café Tacuba. Now, if you know Mexican rock, then you know Café Tacuba. This band was at the forefront of that late 90s Latin alternative music boom, and for a lot of American fans, their records were a real wake-up call to that sound. Something exciting was going on in Mexican music, and Café Tacuba was leading the way.
1: Regular listeners will know by now that we've been on a Sound Opinions world tour, finding out what it means to rock in places like, so far, Japan and Sweden. This week, we're making a stop south of the border in Mexico. Mexico isn't only a musical powerhouse in Latin America. It's a musical powerhouse at home. Remember, 10% of Americans are of Mexican descent, and that number is growing all the time. Josh Norick hosts the public radio music show The Latin Alternative, and he's the vice president of Nacional Records, which is home to a lot of cool Mexican rock and pop bands. We turn to him for help in navigating the country's music scene. Josh, welcome to Sound Opinions. So happy to be here. Now, Josh, you're a dedicated rock and Espanol evangelist, so (laughs) I was surprised to learn that you grew up not in Los Angeles, not in Houston, but in Albany. How does a kid from upstate New York fall in love with Latin alternative music?
3: Oh, Albany, New York is a hotbed of Latin alternative culture. Um, (laughs) Actually, yeah, you know, I grew up in a smaller town outside of Albany, New York, and in my youth, I really didn't even know that Latin rock, you know, beyond Los Lobos existed. I spoke Spanish, but for kicks, I mean, I was translating Tom Petty's Free Falling as Libre Cayendo when I was 12 years old, or Mellencamp's Pink Houses as Casas Rosadas. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh fast forward a few years I'd go to Argentina with the intention of being an exchange student The minute I heard uh, Argentina's band Los Fabulosos Cadillacs, everything changed in my life <laughs> felt angry because i was like how come no one ever told me about this like Mm. spanish rock bands that mixed like their local sounds like tango or norteño and with punk and ska something like literally changed in my blood where at the age of 20 i'm like i'm coming back to the u.s and my life's mission is to spread this gospel
1: Well, you know, obviously Richie Valens was a hero in the 50s, you know, singing La Bamba in Spanish. He was a Mexican-American. But how did rock emerge in Mexico itself and begin to take on its own identity there?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. In Latin America in general, it's not just unique to mexico there's been a rock and roll culture and history uh, starting in the 50s and 60s with groups like los teen tops who would basically do covers of uh, beatles or elvis presley songs in spanish Ay- What happened, though, especially in the mid to late 80s, was you started to have bands that were reflecting their own culture in Mexico. And so some of the first groups sounded more like bad new wave clones and then really evolved and took on a more Mexican sound. Like a classic example of that would be uh, one of the first and biggest Mexican rock bands, Caifanes. They later changed their name to Jaguares, and they're led by Saul Hernandez. You know, when Caifanes started, if you look at their publicity photos... And full disclosure, I was their publicist back in the day. You know, they kind of looked like a, a knockoff of The Cure. Later, they really started to incorporate, you know, some of their native sounds, and you would hear instrumentation that was familiar to Mexico. Things really broke through uh, a band from Mexico called Maldita Vecindad in 1990. They had an album called El Circo that was produced by the legendary rock producer Gustavo Santolaya. He's sort of the godfather of Latin rock production. Mm. This album had a song called Pachuco. You know, Pachuco, kind of referring to the the Zoot Suit era and uh, Chicano culture back way back in you know in the 30s, 40s. Had a real unique sound. It was a ska rock song, but very Mexican sounding, very Mexican ska. And that sort of ushered in a wave of these bands, Cafe Tacuba, Maldita Vecindad, that were not afraid to sound Mexican. <laughs>
2: in the 70s that rock music was basically banned in Mexico. The Mexican government was extremely hostile to it, and, and maybe that was a factor in the scene's slow start. So would you agree with that?
3: Yeah, it, it, rock and roll in Latin America has often been perceived as anti-authoritarian, whether uh, in Argentina, where you could go to jail uh, during the Dirty War for having long hair. Same thing in Mexico. Uh, there were a lot of student protests in the 60s and 70s. Often the look, not even the sound of being a rock and roller could put your life in danger back in the day. And sure, that may have hindered for some time the development of rock.
2: What was interesting to me is the first exposure I had to seeing some of these Mexican bands was on a large scale, actually. Mana was a band that was actually filling arenas in the United States. At least they were in Chicago when I went to see them, and I think it was the late 80s. How does something like that happen?
3: Yeah, I mean, Mana is a is a great example, and it's debatable. I mean, I was their, <laughs> another band that I was the publicist for in the 90s. Um, some hardcore rock and espanol fans say, Hey, Mana's not a rock band, they're a pop band. I disagree, I think they're a rock band. And this is a group that I think because they were so huge in Mexico, certainly it spilled over into the United States in the Mexican immigrant community, and they've also just really blown up among all Latino communities. <laughs> But what's also interesting and that's changed is how many cities now a band like Mana or Jaguares can tour in. In the early 90s, really, the Latin rock movement in the United States was concentrated predominantly in California. Obviously, thanks to Mexican immigration to this country, it's really spread out. I mean, you'll see artists now selling out shows in places like Oklahoma City and Milwaukee. Yeah. That to me is what's really impressive about the growth of Mexican rock.
2: And I think with Maná, at least my impression was that it was essentially Spanish lyrics atop of very Anglo-sounding rock arrangements. But where it really got interesting in the '90s was when some of these more traditional genres and sounds, more more ethnic, more folk-oriented type music, began filtering into the rock and sort of gave it some distinctive flair, right?
3: Yeah, probably the best example of that is, is the landmark 1994 album from Mexico's Café Tacuba. They had this record called Ray, which a lot of people call the, the Sgt. Pepper of Mexican rock. This is an album that one minute will have like a death metal polka song and then go into a very traditional bolero ballad. I mean, it's literally every song is completely different.
5: Hi. Cuando volteé lo tenía arriba, es una luz Algún tiempo me dejó inmóvil, solo me quedó el zumbido de la luz
3: it ushered in, I think a wave of groups who were not afraid to sound Mexican and really just mixed it up. I mean, there must've been a reason why Beck took them out on tour. I think he thinks of them as kindred spirits in a way. (laughs)
2: going to take a break here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, but when we come back, we'll continue our chat with radio host Josh Norick about Mexican music. Plus, we'll weigh in on the Jeff Tweedy-produced album from Mavis Staples. <laughs>
5: ¶¶¶¶
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis. If you're just tuning in, today is stop number three on the Sound Opinions World Tour, our series exploring rock and roll hotspots around the world. Today, we're taking an in-depth look at Mexico.
1: Greg, that track is Polaris from one group that's gotten us pretty excited about Mexican music recently, Nortec Collective, the DJ ensemble from Tijuana that merges techno and Mexican regional musics. We've got Josh Norek with us today. He's acting as our tour guide through the Mexican pop landscape. Josh co-hosts the Latin Alternative, a music radio show, and he's vice president of Nacional Records, a Latin alternative music label. Josh, I want to talk about some of the regional sounds that you hear being incorporated into modern Mexican music. You know, for us gringos, uh, a lot of these Mexican genres can get pretty confusing. Norteño, mariachi, cumbia. What is Mexican regional music and what do some of those traditional genres sound like?
3: Well, I mean, a lot of the perceived what's called regional Mexican sounds originate from northern Mexico. And in terms of the instrumentation, it's very similar to what we would call polka in the United States. There was a history of German, especially Mennonite, immigration to northern Mexico. And so with them, they brought their own instruments, including the accordion. And that's, that's why, you know, if you look at the historical roots of regional Mexican music, you'll see a lot of instruments that would be common to a polka band. I often joke that, you know, Nortec Collective could be huge in Poland if they actually went over and played there
1: And what about traditional genres? Can you take us through some of the more influential ones we should be listening for? Sure. Um, cumbia is
3: a genre that, that really sort of originates out, out of Colombia but has been wildly popular in in Mexico. Sort of like a pulsating bass lines, very danceable, a lot of horns, and so you can hear the influence of cumbia say in a group like El Gran Silencio who had mixed cumbia, ska and hip hop. That would be an example of a genre where a lot of Latin alternative acts really seem to enjoy the fusion. I think it lends itself to rock in a way. <laughs>
5: Lo que quiera, vamos pa' dentro, vamos pa' puera, baila rica comia con la limón limonera, baila rica comia con la limón limonera, vamos pa' dentro, vamos pa' buena, una luna en la cascabelera, digo lo que digo, digo, digo lo que
3: quiera. You have Norteño, which is a, a popular regional Mexican genre. Norteño literally means you know, from the north, and so this is sort of it's almost like Mexican country music, if you will, you know, the stereotype of the the, the guys all wearing the matching suits and the, the, the <laughs> hats, a lot of brass instrumentation, tuba, trumpet, contrabajo. So you have a band like Nortec Collective. Their name itself, Nortec, uh, is short for the fusion of Norteño and techno. And um, the two main DJs, Bostich and Fusible, I mean, yes, they're DJs, but when you go see them in concert, it's a full band. They have... An accordionist, they have a guy jumping around with a tuba, keyboards.
5: A sound, machine.
2: sound, machine. sound machine.
3: It's probably the most familiar to uh, American audiences, you know, the serenading uh, with, with trumpets. But basically, yeah, mariachi, cumbia, norteño, those tend to be the traditional Mexican genres that I see getting incorporated into Latin rock or Latin alternative music
1: i I'm tripping still on something you said earlier about the fondness in Mexico for goth and, and bands modeling themselves after the cure. Is this thematic? Is this musical? I mean, you know, it makes sense. Goth, Day of the Dead, the culture, you know. Yeah,
3: absolutely. I mean, there's certainly a cultural aspect. I mean, Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead, for sure. And, and, you know, a lot of the gothic imagery associated with Catholicism in in Mexico. And at the same time, the phenomenon of Morrissey in the United States, that probably 80% of the people buying a new Morrissey album in 2013 are Chicano. This gothic exchange is fascinating. I think it really culminated for me in terms of, as a witness, uh, in 2002, Jaguares, the Mexican rock band, did a five-city tour in the United States together with Morrissey. Mm. When I went to the concert uh, at the Arrowhead Pond in Anaheim, in my head, coming from the East Coast, I was expecting the great clash of civilizations. Just in Albany, New York, most of Morrissey fans were like, you know, typically pasty-faced, artsy kids wearing black jackets. When I got to the concert, I couldn't be more wrong. The audience was 99.9% Mexican or Chicano. They were crying. You'd see 300 pound cholos crying when Morrissey was on stage, and then absolutely pumping their fists when Jaguares came on stage. So it's sort of like this duality, if you will, to Mexican rock culture.
2: So it sounds like there's a fairly strong touring base in Mexico. These bands obviously had to develop somewhere. So there's a pretty good club scene in the big cities?
3: Yes and no. Um, There's also been some changes in what's been happening. I mean, Mexico traditionally had like two powerhouses of the rock scene. You had Mexico City, which, of course, with 20 million people, how can it not be? <laughs> and that's where a lot of these bands like Café Tacuba, Jaguares, Maldita Vecindad came from. Basically, all the bands in that late 80s, early 90s era were coming out of Mexico City. What happened, though, in the late 90s and in the early 2000s, the real exciting place was Monterey, Mexico, up north. Mm-hmm monterey has always been a more middle-class city it's the industrial capital of mexico you have a lot of engineers and you know let's be honest rock and roll is largely a middle-class phenomenon it requires at least enough money to be able to buy instruments or a rehearsal place and so you would have a lot of these really cool cutting edge groups like kinky or hip-hop groups like control machete or power pop groups like jumbo coming out of monterey And unfortunately, in recent years, just Monterey has been hit very hard by the war on drugs in Mexico and the cartel fighting. A lot of the nightclubs in Monterey have had to close. There was an interesting article in Billboard magazine uh, last year talking about the number of artists and managers who lived in Monterey who are relocating to Mexico City for its relative safety. Mm. You know, these clubs would get shot up. You know, people will be like mass kidnapped and murdered. Uh, It's just it's no joke. And so unfortunately... Uh, in Monterey, the scene is probably not as strong as it was 10 years ago.
1: You mentioned the drug wars. Is the Mexican rock that's being made today, is is it very political in addressing that and immigrations, you know, U.S. policy towards Mexico?
3: Yeah, uh, in a number of ways, yes. Some more direct than others. For example, Kinky, who are an electro rock band, their latest album was called Sueño de la Máquina, and it was a little darker than their other albums. The, the big single on their latest album is called Después del After, or After the Afterlife, which I... I don't really think that a song like that would have been on their record from 10 years ago. You know, these guys are from Monterey, Mexico, they relocated to Los Angeles. So that's on the more subtle side. And then you have a group like Mexican Institute of Sound, which to me is, this is one of the more interesting transformations. Mexican Institute of Sound is the one-man electronic act uh, by a gentleman named Camilo Lara. He has probably the most extraordinary double life of anyone I've ever encountered in the music industry. Uh, For many years, he was the president of EMI Latin America, the whole company. And by night, recording as a DJ in Mexican Institute of Sound. Probably about a year ago, Camilo's apartment building one day he woke up and there were helicopters circling all over the building and he later found out that there had been a ton of c4 explosives found in his building and you know again involved with the drug war that's going on and Camilo is really just an artist artist he's probably the leading tastemaker in Mexico but his prior Mexican Institute of Sound albums were always just you know fun and goofy Latin electronica and His most recent album, I never would have really expected this from him, is called Politico or polit- politician or political, it uh, would be a translation. It was very overtly political. And the big single uh, called Mexico really talks in very direct terms lyrically about the drug war and about the corruption in Mexico. And the video, I mean, I, personally, I think he put his life in potential danger. He, he's o- overtly mocking the government and the government's response to the you know cartels as well as the cartels themselves. He's being outright invisible, which is, you know, we take for granted our safety in the United States.
5: Cuánto tiempo va a pasar para que pueda mejorar Todos somos víctimas de un estado conquistado en con un gobierno.
2: How uh, eager are these bands and artists to cross over, to speak to, you know, the English-speaking audience? There's a line that they're walking here, right? They perhaps want to get recognized outside of their country, but at the same time, they don't want to compromise what makes their music distinctive in the first place.
3: That's a great question. Again, I think it's probably case by case. There have been some groups that have been doing some more English lyrics in their music, but I don't think it's... I think that moment like 10 years ago where everyone's like Latin Alternative is going to be the next big thing. It's going to cross over and start getting played on K-Rock in Los Angeles. Like that moment has come and gone. And I don't know if artists are necessarily expecting that they're going to break big among English speakers. But it, it really seems to be case by case. We shouldn't discount also the second, third generation Latino kids that's an increasing base you know these are english dominant latino youth people tend to forget that the overwhelming majority of latinos in this country speak english as their first language so i never take for granted that um a latin alternative fan or a concert goer is going to be born outside this country a lot of times they're reconnecting with their heritage you know their parents maybe listen to los tigres del norte and you know as a kid they rebelled against that but then When they hear an artist like Nortec or Mexican Institute of Sound, they they enjoy the sounds, they recognize it, but it still feels modern, contemporary, and hip to them.
1: Josh, thank you so much for being our guide on the Sound Opinions World Tour. Fue un placer. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Josh Norrick co-hosts Public Radio's The Latin Alternative. You can learn more about his music show at www.thelatinalternative.com.
2: Jim, to round out our musical visit to Mexico, we wanted to know what Mexican music fans are listening to right now. So we turned to Alejandro Franco. He's the host of the Mexico City-based music TV show Sessiones, which airs throughout Latin America. We got him on the phone from Mexico City. Alejandro, thanks for joining us.
6: Thanks a lot for having me. I'm very glad to speak with you.
2: So you're the man with a finger on the pulse of the Mexican music scene. Now, what are most music fans listening to right now? Who's topping the charts rock-wise?
6: There's one band, and the name is Zoe. And Zoe right now is the most exciting and huge band in Mexico. They're playing everywhere, top 40s in every festival, touring always, and they're producing right now the fifth or the sixth album.
7: En tu planeta me quedé. Fue por un tiempo muy, nunca fue mi plan. Pero mi nave se apellidó. Y ahora estoy perdido. Aquí en mañana nos el sol.
2: Just that little taste of it, Alejandro. uh, Sort of like a Mexican Beatles type of approach. It has that uh, orchestral pop sound to it. Love, love, love,
7: love, love, love,
6: love. For us, it's very natural. We are very close to English. British music in general, we guys, we grew up listening to Oasis or Blur or, I don't know, the Stone Roses. A lot of people in the U.S., they are not aware of the Stone Roses, and they are very popular in Mexico.
1: So Zoe's topping the charts. Uh, What else, Alejandro? Maybe an act you're listening to right now?
6: Uh, There is one girl, and her name is Carla Morrison. She's a folk artist, you know? She's from Tecate, Baja California. I mean, she's surrounded of this California style, not only in Mexico but also the U.S. She started indie. She stills indie. She's always saying things against the system, <laughs> in the government, in the media, etc. But she is very cute in in her music, and I think you're gonna like it. The song is called "Eres Tú."
2: Uh, kind of lush and uh, sultry. The way you are describing her, Alejandra, I was thinking, um, is this going to be some kind of Annie DeFranco type of protest music? So you're saying that what she's talking about in her lyrics. No, are... no,
6: it's, it's, it's curious because not in the lyrics. In the lyrics, she's kind with the words and she's always talking about love, but her personality in the media and everywhere is very strong. Yeah. I mean, it's the opposite of what you just heard. So this song is like a, a romantic song, actually.
2: <laughs> All right, so we've got time for one more track. Now, Alejandro, what artist do you want to leave us with?
6: Well, I have a guy, I'm a huge fan of Johnny Cash, you know. I have a guy that I always say it's the Mexican Johnny Cash, She's also from Baja California, and the name is Juan Ciderol. It's a mix of Johnny Cash with Mexican regional music, the corridos, norteños, etc. If I put Juan Ciderol to my mom, she's like, ah, oh, like, I like him. <laughs> but when I go to a gig of Juan and I see these young people jumping and very happy to see him, it's like okay this this is a little bit different. I I also say that he's a hipster phenomenon, you know, in Mexico. And this song is La Muchacha de las Tierras Lejanas, something like the faraway girl.
1: The Mexican Johnny Cash, as recommended by Sesiones host Alejandro Franco in Mexico City. Alejandro, thanks so much for joining us.
6: Oh, thank you.
1: Take care. Bye. We've got a Spotify playlist from our Mexican tour up at soundopinions.org, and we want to hear from you. Drop us a line talking about your favorite Mexican musicians or anything under the rock and roll sun at 888-859-1800 when we come back a review of the new Mavis Staples album One True Vine. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
5: i so-
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kot with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a song called Jesus Wept, written by Jeff Tweedy and sung by Mavis Staples on her 13th studio album. We talked a little bit about uh, Mavis and her family a few shows ago, late 40s, starting out in Chicago with the Staples Singers as an 8-year-old lead vocalist for this family gospel group led by her father, Pops, and including her sisters, Yvonne and Cleo, as well as her brother, Purvis. They transitioned from gospel into message music in the 60s. They were working alongside people like Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin. They sold 30 million records at Stax Records in Memphis in the 70s, that great soul label with message music, you know, songs like Respect Yourself and I'll Take You There. And then things sort of fell apart. They fell out of fashion, came to the point where Mavis was actually calling up local radio stations for weekend DJ gigs and looking for jobs shilling hair products on TV. Prince brought her out of obscurity once again in the late 80s and early 90s, started working with her. And then, after her father, Pops, died in 2000, she was seriously considering retiring from the music business, but instead self-financed her comeback record, Have a Little Faith, which was put out by Alligator Records in 2004. Then began a, a great streak of albums. 2007, she worked with Ry Cooter on We'll Never Turn Back. Wilco's Jeff Tweedy came into the picture as producer and songwriter on You Are Not Alone in 2010. And Tweedy is back as producer on this new record, One True Vine. Here's a track from it before we review it. It's called I Like the Things About Me. It's a remake of an old Staples singer song from the 60s by Mavis Staples on Sound Opinions.
5: I looked in the mirror What did I see? A brand new image of Yeah. should I be surprised I like the things about me
1: That was I Like the Things About Me from Mavis Staples' 13th studio album, One True Vine. Greg, I love that song. I love the way that this tune from the 60s talking about I Am no longer going to be ashamed to be African American. I love the things about me that I, I was formerly ashamed about or hated. I'm going to take pride in them. It's as relevant in 2013 as it was in the 60s. And that's what has been great about Mavis Staples. You are too modest to say it. You have spent much of the last couple of years working on a biography of Mavis Staples. Earlier, heck, you wrote a biography of Wilco. So you know a thing or or a thousand about Jeff Tweedy and Mavis Staples. That having been said, as much as I like you, I did not love You Are Not Alone, the 2010 collaboration between Tweety and Staples. I think you agree. I don't know if you'll admit it. The Tweety was a little odd. Now I think he feels comfortable with Mavis. And the sound here is stripped down like Rick Rubin with Johnny Cash. It's her and that voice. Even when she stumbles a little bit, a little scratchy here and there, it's still a beautiful voice. It's all the more human for how simply this was recorded. And I love the fact that Tweety went outside of the box. I mean, what other album has material by low Funkadelic, Jeff Tweedy himself, and Nick Lowe, right? I mean, you know, you'd never see that collection of songs, and yet they are all owned by Mavis in a way that the material on her recent albums hasn't been. It's a dark, quiet record. It's a contemplative, praying alone in an empty chapel record, and it's a beautiful record. It's absolutely a buy it as far as I'm concerned.
2: Well, I think Mavis has been on a roll the last three or four albums. I think it is one of the great career second acts in the history of of popular music the last 50 years. I mean, consider that the woman is going to be 74 years old in July. This is an extraordinary run for an artist who should be retired, as some people might feel. Mavis sounds better than ever in a lot of ways, and I think part of the reason is that she's found nuances in her voice that maybe she didn't even know she had. And the other thing is, Tweedy's done a really nice job of putting her in a comfort zone. He loves those early Staples Singers recordings where they were very stripped down. It was basically just Pop Staples guitar and those voices. And he's doing a very similar thing here with the production. It's basically him playing most of the instruments, his son Spencer on drums, and then very little else other than Mavis's voice and a couple of background singers. So, it's a very intimate sounding recording. The stripped down feel they give, I like the things about me, is particularly effective. And what I love is those lines I looked in the mirror, what did I see? A brand new image of the same old me. And she's talking about what you were addressing there earlier, Jim. It's time to reevaluate this person. You know, Mm. let's look at the body of work that she has produced and realize, you know, this is an American treasure we still have alive, very much in our midst, doing great work at the top of her game. Uh, one True Vines A Buy It record
5: I tell you little buddy This whole island Is bewitched Just to cast away I island lost The sea Oh Now I'm stranded On my own Stranded Far from home Come on
2: You remember We were shipwrecked together
5: Stranded I'm so far from home Stranded Yeah mama
2: as often as possible on this show, we like to climb into the Sound Opinions helicopter, and Jim is going to parachute in to the Desert Island this week. Jim, what are you going to play on the Desert Island jukebox for us? Greg, I'm going to play a song
1: that uh, resonated with me last week. I was on a road trip out in New Jersey. My mom was in the hospital. I got stuck there a lot longer than I thought I was going to get stuck. And it's always hard going home again, as Thomas Wolfe said, Right. But this song always comes to mind when I'm making that drive from Newark Airport down to South Jersey, where my folks live. And I was, you know, not getting any public radio station in, and I'm flipping the dials, and then it actually comes on. And I am man enough to say it always makes me well up. Something about the power of America from 1968 by Simon and Garfunkel. What a great song! You always think of it as a very wordy song because the words are so heavy. But you look at the lyrics, and there's only three verses, and it's really very short. Simon is writing about hitchhiking from Saginaw, Michigan, to Pittsburgh, and then taking a Greyhound bus into New York City with his then-girlfriend, Kathy Chitty, whom he'd met in England in 1965. Kathy, I'm lost. I said, though I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. Counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike... They've all gone to look for America. Makes me lose it every time. Something about that song. It's just amazing. The way it goes up, counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, and then resolves in the We've All Gone to Look for America. I actually was going to play the version by Yes. The progressive rock band in the early 70s did an extraordinary arrangement of this tune, which I love, but I'm still getting hate mail for a previous Desert Island jukebox about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I figured I'd stay away from the progressive rock. Also, you think I hate all things Bowie, but Bowie did an extraordinary version of this tune in 2001 at the concert for New York City. Just him, vocals, and a weird acomium keyboard on stage. It's a great song, no matter how you cut it here's the Simon and Garfunkel version of America on Sound Opinions
7: let us be lovers we'll marry our fortunes together I've got some real estate here in my bag so we have bought a pack of cigarettes and this is Pies and wine and off to look for America. Kathy, I said, as we bought born in greyhound in Pittsburgh, this chicken seems like a dream to me now. It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. To look for America Laughing on the bus Playing games with the faces She said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy I said be careful, his bow tie is really a camera I think there's one in my raincoat We smoked the last one an hour ago So I looked at the scenery She read my magazine And the moon rose over an open field Sleeping. I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. Counting the cars on the New Jersey turnpike, they've all come to look for
1: America. That was America by Simon and Garfunkel, my desert island jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit from the Danish electropop artist Indians. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minhoff. Our new intern is Megan Murphy. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he went on a three-day vacation to Guadalajara. He's been gone like four weeks. <laughs> On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. I'm in the phone with this one across the
5: hall. If you don't answer all those ringing up the wall, I know she's there, but I just had a call. Don't leave me hanging on the telephone. Don't leave me hanging on the telephone.
0: New messages. Hi guys, uh, this is Veronica from Portland, Oregon. I hope I'm not too late to add my rules to the concert eti- etiquette rule book. I love going to rock shows, but um, here's the thing: I'm only four foot eleven, and actually I'm only four foot ten and three quarters, if I'm being honest. And uh, when the show starts, I very carefully pick a spot where I can see the stage, and then invariably, some guy who's like six foot four wanders over and stands right in front of me. It's like I'm a tall guy magnet. So my suggestion is, once you find your spot at a show, turn around and see if there's someone who's a lot shorter than you standing right behind you. If there is, offer to swap places. Trust me, it's not going to change your view at all to have me standing in front of you. Okay, thanks.
2: Hi, gentlemen, this is your friend and fan, Fred Mills, in Raleigh, North Carolina. On your Brian Ferry profile, I'm not sure if you gave Bri a pass because of his legacy or if you genuinely love the Jazz Age. I kind of suspect the former, though. I mean, seriously, a Brian Ferry album without Brian Ferry vocals? That's like, I don't know, uh, an Andy McKay album without saxes or a Phil Manzanera album, minus any guitars. I think the jazz age is really the sound of a man who's run out of ideas. And Since Ferry has said there won't be any more Roxy Music reunions, it also suggests he's focused on ossifying and burying his old group's legacy. Keep up good work, guys. Just the same. I listen every weekend. Bye-bye.
4: Wow, I loved Brian Ferry, who loved Brian Ferry forever. Best uh, thing about Brian Ferry in my experience that I've had is I had a dream that he performed personally for me in an old theater in Astoria, Oregon, long, long ago. I mean, like 20 years ago, I dreamt this. uh, One of the most vivid dreams of my life, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience with uh, Brian Ferry. So, uh... Uh, your interview with him and all the music was also very memorable too. So, just loving.
5: Bye bye.
0: Is this is Catherine from Chicago, longtime listener. Sound opinions. Um, I disagree with your review of the Kanye record. Although, you know, part of your review on both of your hands seem to be positive. I'm really eating this album up. I think it's really quite good. Using a minimalist approach, which is pretty different for him. A lot of dancehall, a lot of house. It's incredibly dynamic musically, um, which you know, no other hip hop artist right now that's contemporary, that's known, that's well known, can even touch him. Um, despite him using Chief Keef on some of the what he's doing, it's so much better than what Chief Keef is putting out there. Frankly, um, yeah, I think we yet again have a very complex picture of Kanye West with this album. It's sort of divided, I think, into two parts, and I think I think that's why I think of him as an artist instead of just a pop star. It's autobiographical. It's postmodern. It's painful. It's paranoid. And I think he's just you know, blindingly talented. I say buy it. I say buy it all the way. <laughs> Thanks,
5: guys. My mama was raised in the era when clean water was only served to the fairer skin. Doing clothes, you would have thought I had help, but they wasn't satisfied unless I picked the car in myself. You see, his no more messages. Don't touch anything.
2: To give us your opinions on sound opinions, call our hotline 888 859 1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by
5: PRX.